Lauren. Mike. Lauren, how much would you pay to go into space? I would pay $119 per year. That's it. I'd pay the exact amount that Amazon Prime costs because according to Jeff Bezos, my purchases help send him to space and so he can subsidize my trip to space. Uh, I don't think that's going to fly. Pardon the pun. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Colori, a senior editor here at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And we are also joined by Wired editor-at-large, Stephen Levy. Hello, Stephen. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Michael and Lauren. And I'm always delighted to be on the show. And we're delighted to have you, of course, because today we are talking about space and Jeff Bezos. As you probably heard, the former Amazon CEO and richest person in the world flew into space this week. His Blue Origin rocket carried him and his three besties out of the atmosphere, where they floated around for a few minutes before safely landing back on Earth. The event wasn't just about Bezos. Also aboard the rocket were the oldest and youngest people ever to go into space, 82-year-old former pilot Wally Funk, and an 18-year-old paying customer whose seat on the rocket cost many, many millions of dollars. The Blue Origin flight this week and the Virgin Galactic flight last week were significant steps for the commercial space industry. And Stephen, you've been following Bezos's astronautical ambitions for years, and you were in Texas this week to see the Blue Origin launch. There are four delightful stories about the event written by you on Wired right now that people can read. So let's start with the big question. Why does Jeff Bezos want to go into space so badly? What's in it for him? Um, pardon me. I think you mean Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. There's actually two answers to that question. One is, you know, actually, but two parts to the question that have been implied. One is, why is he spending money to have a space company? And the second is, why does he want to go to space? Um, the company is because he's got this grand vision that human beings are by and large going to live in space colonies, not on planet Earth. And this is something that he became enamored of by reading the works of uh, Gerald O'Neill, who was a futurist who postulated this. And Jeff, as a high school student, gave his valedictory speech at graduation about this and has been passionate about this, pursuing it ever since. So that's the grand goal. And everything that Blue Origin does is going to step-by-step ferociously, which is its motto, uh, move that plan closer into being. Now, why he wants to go into space is because he's like a space nerd. He just wants the adventure of it. And he built his own company to take him into space. And uh, he actually skipped a couple steps in the step-by-step process um, by moving up his chance to go to space. Uh, They never tested human flight before this. They did 15 test flights without humans, and he wanted to be on board the very first one and take his bestie, his brother, with him, along with the oldest and youngest people. So uh, it was kind of a spectacle which broke character for Blue Origin, which had been trying to do things very, very deliberately before then. Hmm. Let's quickly talk about the four passengers on the flight. I think we have to start with Wally Funk. Yeah, she she's unbelievable. Um, 82 years old. And she was part of the Mercury 13, which in 1960, someone got funding 
to train a group of 13 women in the same way that the astronauts of the Mercury 7, who would go into space, they were officially NASA astronauts, that they would be tested and trained. And Wally, uh, her name is Mary Wallace Funk, everyone calls her Wally, uh, did the test so well, she beat the standards of almost all the Mercury 7 astronauts. Uh, But NASA uh, denied Mercury 13. They actually had a congressional hearing, and Scott Carpenter and John Glenn, the astronauts, testified that this isn't the place for women's space. You know, you really can't have women there. There are places to support astronauts, not to be astronauts. And NASA rejected the whole idea of women in space for many years. And by the time they did accept women, they had all these requirements that Wally didn't um, qualify for, like an engineering degree or military experience. So even though she was a trained pilot and and trained other pilots and uh, passed all the tests, she never got to fly in space. She became obsessed with it. And she signed up in 2010 for Richard Branson's program, which for $200,000 could give her a seat in the Virgin Galactic spaceship. Um, Jeff Bezos, in a very canny move, knew all this and plucked her out of the waiting list for Richard Branson and put her to the top of the list for Blue Origin. And 82-year-old Wally was on board, raring to go. She's unbelievable. She's a real spark plug. Um, (laughs) And her only complaint was, uh, well, there's not enough room. I couldn't see the whole earth. And get me back up there again. You almost say that she got the... um the prime delivery treatment, right? Expedited shipping. <laughs> you know, I've been very careful not to make Amazon puns in uh, my very coverage. Very good, very good. And Stephen, did you have the opportunity to talk to Wally when you were in Van Horn? Uh, no, I, uh, you know, they, they were very savvy. They, uh, they only gave interviews to broadcast folks and Wally herself, they're a little nervous about her because she's a little unpredictable. So her only <laughs> nice. interviews were in a group of four um, where, you know, uh, exposure would be limited. Well, I am super happy for Mary Wallace Funk, a.k.a. Wally. Um, let's talk about the other folks who were in the rocket with Jeff Bezos. There was also Oliver Damon who's the youngest person to ever go into space, and then Mark Bezos, Jeff Bezos' brother. How did they end up on the shortlist? Well, Mark Bezos, uh, I think, had a family connection. Okay, (laughs) a little bit of nepotism there. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Jeff describes him as my best friend. I know Mark a little, you know, sometimes we hang out uh, at Ted, super nice guy, um, and Jeff Bezos' brother. So that was his ticket. Uh, on there. There's an interesting little controversy uh, that uh, particularly the, the veteran space reporters are pretty upset about. Um, everyone thought that Mark Bezos was 53 years old. Um, that's what I reported in my story. Um, but someone had some document that said he might not be 53, he might be 50 or something. And Blue Origin wouldn't confirm his age. So the space reporters who, you know, their whole life is getting every detail right. You know, they think they're the scribes of history. So they were pretty upset that Blue Origin wouldn't confirm that. And I actually asked Blue Origin, and they said, you know, well, you have to go to the public documents on that. So I don't know whether they meant we have to dig up his birth certificate or what, what all that was about. But um, Mark uh, was called by Jeff as the funniest person in space 
because he made a couple jokes or something, and you know, and Jeff, I guess, knows him as the family wit. And the veteran space reporters, uh, again, contested that, um, and they cited a couple astronauts they knew who were funny. There was actually a podcast called Two Funny Astronauts, so that was their proof. So they, they, they didn't think that Mark was funny. Then we told the funny story about um, going down in 5Gs, uh, which is the time that they made a sound check. They asked him if he was all right, and he could hardly get the words out because he was at his maximum Gs at that moment in the flight. Oh. Year. Okay, so we have the marginally funny Mark Bezos, who's age well, he, he's is funny unknown. guy, but but not the funniest person in space. Okay, uh, and t- and tell us about Oliver. And Oliver Damon, eighteen years old, um, he's in his gap year between <laughs> high school and the University of Utrecht. I'm sorry, I said I that laugh. he would have a pretty good subject. Well, you didn't do this during your gap year, Mike. No. Okay. He had a great subject to write in freshman composition about what I did during my summer vacation. <laughs> and um, though I actually felt that in terms of inspiration, you know, you think an 18-year-old, this is great. It did not cross the Carmen line of inspiration because it, his dad, who started a hedge fund, bought the seat in the auction or was in one of the high underbidders in the auction. And this is weird that the high bidder in the auction spent $28 million and then bowed out because of a quote scheduling conflict. Um, so most of us would check the schedule, check the calendar before we bid $28 million to go, you know, for a seat somewhere. Right. Um, I think there's a backstory there we haven't heard. So they, went to the list of the underbidders who spent millions of dollars but less than 28 and picked Oliver, probably because the bookend, Wally. So we have the youngest and the oldest. And he seemed like a a nice young guy. Um, And he was obviously thrilled to be on space. He said it's been his lifelong ambition. So (laughs) his life was nowhere near as long as Wally Funk's. Right, yes, since the early 2000s. So, Stephen, there was some dispute about whether or not these four quote-unquote astronauts actually went into space this week. Uh, Could you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a big controversy about whether a suborbital flight even qualifies people to say, I've been into space. Um, And there's sort of a dispute about how you can even say, I've been to space, what the height you have to attain is. The uh, FAA says that uh, it's 50 miles. Go up 50 miles and you, you qualify as being in space. And that's how high the Virgin Galactic spaceship went. Um, now, the Blue Origin takes you up just past what's called the Carmen Line, which is 100 kilometers or 62 miles. And they say that the Virgin uh, so-called astronauts, um, they aren't really in space. There's space with an asterisk because they don't cross the Carmen Line. Um, I think this is kind of funny because, uh, and of course, looking up stuff about all this, Alan Shepard who went to space 60 years ago on the first American space flight. Uh, it was a suborbital flight. He went 116 miles, right? So neither of these folks attained what was done 60 years ago. So I find it odd that they're arguing about it. Um, 
Stephen, I'm get, we're getting the note from our producer that we're getting close to 10 minutes for this segment. But that actually brings me, me to my next question, which is... That, that, why, that's long enough to go into space. Flight, we can go up exactly. Back. We could be there and back already. Well, um, why was this flight only 10 minutes? T- tell us about, like, is that the standard amount of time for these kinds of flights? Well, it's a suborbital flight, right? So there's two kinds of space flights generally. Um, there's the suborbital flight where you just kind of like one of those um, air rockets that you pump a lot of water into and then let go. Um, it's like a big version of that. Uh, it goes up and it goes down and you're in, up in space for four minutes. I called it the quibby of space travel. <laughs> oh, nice. uh, and it's, it's great if you're like a rich person and you don't want to take up too much time off. You go straight up and straight down. And it's actually much, much easier to do that suborbital jaunt than in orbit because you need um, to have to go four times as fast to break the Earth's atmosphere and get up there uh, on a course to go into orbit, which means you need 16 times more energy because of some equation in math. Jeff Bezos is going to explain it to you. So uh, it's a much bigger investment in a much bigger rocket to, to, to get up there. Uh, and uh, Blue Origin is starting with these little suborbital flights. All right. Well, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the billionaire space race. With an emphasis on the billionaire part. Capital B. We've talked a lot about Jeff Bezos so far in the show, but he's not the only billionaire trying to jumpstart his own private space tourism company. A couple weeks ago, Virgin CEO Richard Branson beat Bezos into space aboard his own Virgin Galactic rocket. And SpaceX, Elon Musk's astro endeavor, has been sending flights to the International Space Station for years, though Musk himself hasn't climbed aboard a rocket yet. What are you afraid of, Elon? Now, Stephen, where does Blue Origin sit in context with the other commercial spaceflight companies like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and the others? Well, the immediate competition uh, for space tourists is between Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. So both of them now are competing to get very rich people to put up a lot of money to go into space. And people question how big a market that is. Uh, there's a limited number of super rich people and probably even even more limited number of people who want to spend a lot of money to go up into space for a couple minutes. Um, and there's some risk of that. You know, Branson started his company by licensing the technology that was developed by another billionaire, Paul Allen, along with uh, an aircraft designer, Burt Rutan, a legendary designer. And Alan got out of the space tour business because he felt that sooner or later someone's going to die. And he didn't want to be owning the company when that happened. Hmm. So he sold his assets to Branson, um, who figured, well, um, I could make it so maybe people won't die, though. Well, let's see if that happens. Um, I hope he's right. Uh, And Branson jumped at the chance to go into space even sooner than he planned, the minute that he heard Bezos was planning to go up on July 20th, which is the anniversary of the Apollo uh, moon landing. So um, I think uh, Bezos might not have been happy about that. Um, Everyone's saying congratulations to each other, but they are 
competitors. In the long run, though, Blue Origin really competes with SpaceX. Uh, Blue Origin is already building future generations of rockets. There's one called New Glenn to go into orbit. And there's another rocket, New Armstrong, which is going to propel people to the moon and beyond, to infinity and beyond, maybe. Um, so... Uh, the real competition, I think, is between Bezos and Musk. And Musk, I think, is maybe will wait till he, he goes to Mars, which is his dream. Stephen, why should we really care about all these rich men and their rockets and their private space endeavors? Um, I mean, the, the trip that we saw this week that you saw from Van Horn, Texas, didn't really break new ground. It did symbolically in having... Wally and Oliver on board, but just in terms of the distance traveled and the actual trip itself. So why should the public care? Well, for one thing, these private space companies are really the pillars now of the the whole space endeavor. Um, One thing which Blue Origin and SpaceX do that no government space program has done is make this reliable set of rockets that not only take off, but they come back to Earth and can land safely. And reusable rockets are the future of space travel. They're much cheaper and they're going to make for routine space travel, um, which is going to be the the launch pad, if you will, of um, new kinds of things in space, new kinds of satellites and maybe manufacturing in space and other things like that. So I think that's significant. It's a, it's a moment um, where besides space tourism, um, we're going to see uh, more routine flights and practice to take us to the next level, so to speak, in space. But I mean, in some ways, Jeff Bezos is really creating this image here of himself as the ultimate Villain, either that or having some kind of like mega midlife crisis between putting giant balls in downtown Seattle and flying a phallic rocket into space. Don't forget about the cowboy hat. (laughs) And we can't forget about the cowboy hat. I mean, Amazon, the company that he founded and for a long time ran until recently, is a capitalism machine, right? And everything that it does between running distribution centers and all of the shipping that it does and the way that it's actually created, you know, this new category of ultra-fast shipping to consumers has created an enormous carbon footprint. And so a lot of people have interpreted this this flight as as a stunt, effectively, and said, well, sure, that's nice. That's nice that you can just, you have the money and the power to just leave Earth or explore a life beyond Earth. But what have you what have you done to the earth here? Like, what have you done to the environment here? And and sure, Bezos has made a commitment. And in fact, I think on the heels of the flight, he made a commitment to invest even more money into environmental causes. But is that is that enough? It's interesting you, you say that. You say, what have they done to the earth? I think of Jim Morrison in When the Music's Over, who said those exact words the year we landed on the moon. So uh, <laughs> kudos to that, Lauren. Uh, I think that this summer... The whole narrative space uh, has been kind of a tone-deaf move by Branson and Bezos, and particularly with Bezos, who, as I said before, he has these longer-term visions, and he wants to build the space industry, um, but uh, maybe goaded by Branson, um, it's all about this idea of we should be inspired because a billionaire went to space and and heard the billionaire talk about how awesome it was and how amazing it was and how it, it changed him. Um, and he looked down on Earth and realized 
you know, how fragile it was. I think we're in big trouble if we have to go into outer space to realize how fragile the Earth is. So I, I really didn't embrace that point. So you, and even Bezos admitted that people are right when they say, why are these billionaires going into space? Um, it's tone deaf. And uh, he said, yeah, you're right. But I'm going anyway. I could go on. Let's just say Jeff Bezos already has one Lauren in his life who cares a great deal about these endeavors. He certainly doesn't need another. <laughs> yeah, and he gave her a little gift. You know, there's this weird moment in the press conference where, you know, they were announcing all this stuff they took up into space. And I think this is bizarre. I mean, I don't know why things are more valuable because they've been in space. One thing they brought up was a piece of canvas from the Wright Brothers flight that they got from the wing of the Wright Brothers flight. And they like, took it up to space and then brought it down. And, and it's supposed to be more valuable. And saying, that seems weird to me. It's pretty valuable on its own. And adding your own little mark to it would seem to be making it like less valuable. It's like getting the current Pope to autograph a Gutenberg Bible, right? And, you know, so, and then, then, so then he said, I brought this, this up. And he said, Lauren, pointing to his girlfriend, um, I want you to come up and I want Jackie, my mom, to come up with her. And I thought for a minute he was going to propose to her right there in the press conference. But no, he gave her a nice little necklace with the Blue Origin logo on it that he brought up to space. Um, you know, hey, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Um, something else that we should talk about that happened during that uh, post-flight press conference is um, they earned their wings, didn't they? Yeah, they, I, they, you know, so the designation of astronaut, of commercial astronaut, uh, has been until um, the day of this flight, um, if you went more than 50 miles up, into space, the FAA would consider you a commercial astronaut. You'd be an official astronaut, and you would earn your wings. So they had a very elaborate ceremony. The first thing that happened is they prepared this custom pin with a, an A on it and a little thing signifying the road to space and the Blue Origin logo and blue sapphire to indicate that you were still an inhabitant of Earth, right? In case you forgot, in <laughs> four minutes, you like kind of changed allegiance and had a different passport. <laughs> and they pinned them on each of the astronauts who had these jumpsuits. Looked like they were about to wash a window. And there were almost tears, you know, given. It was so significant. But almost at the moment that they were giving the pins, the FAA issued an order saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't have this. It's like saying if you're on a cruise ship as a passenger, like you're like a sailor, right? I mean, so everyone who goes into space can't be called an astronaut. You're only an astronaut in the commercial sense if you're flying the spaceship or you're involved in some sort of capacity to advance the mission and you've trained a whole lot, not the 14 hours that they give a Blue Origin passenger. So when they were pinning the wings on there, literally the ink wasn't dry on this order, which said, this is, you know, BS. You know, th this is like the wings that you pin on someone, you give a little kid on on the United flight to say, yeah, hey, you're the captain of the flight. Officially, I asked Blue Origin about that. And they said, well, officially they're astronauts as far as we're concerned. <laughs> That's some serious shade from the FAA. Stephen, before we take another break, if you could name one other thing 
that Jeff Bezos could be doing with his billions, his current net worth is over $200 billion, to help save humanity or move us forward, what would it be if it wasn't space travel? Is that a loaded question? <laughs> Just curious to hear what your answer might be. Well, obviously, there's a there's like a hundred billion things he could do, right? I mean, you know, this this world is hurting. But when I asked him about this three years ago, and I should say three years ago, um, I did this huge feature about Jeff. I spent hours with him. He gave me a tour of the base, a tour of the factory. Um, we went up to the mountain and looked at his, the 10,000-year clock. I went to his ranch, and I asked him that very thing. And he said, look, what way I can impact the world is to do maybe what someone else isn't doing. And no one with my resources can do this thing that I consider the most important thing for humanity, which is to save civilization by helping us do the infrastructure that one day we're going to have a trillion humans living in these space colonies and Earth could be almost like a nature preserve. Um, people would come down and visit it. You know, and I wrote in one of my stories this week that if he gets it his way, instead of people saving their money for a ticket to go to space, these people in these space colonies would be saving their money to visit this magical place called Earth. I mean, it already is pretty magical, but we need to treat it better. We really do. Yeah, well, I mean, if uh, it's getting less magical when it's on fire. And you could say, well, Jeff has to should devote his money to... Climate change, he's doing $10 billion on climate change, right? Which is, it's not nothing, but it's, it's not like um, all the whole bowl of wax. Um, it's not like his ex-wife who's furiously giving her money away. Um, but um, I have to say, in his mind, he's doing the most he can for humanity. He says it's the most important thing he'll ever do. Well, uh, if you were going to invoke um, Jim Morrison earlier, then I feel compelled to invoke uh, another poet by the name of Gil Scott Heron. I can't pay my doctor bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll pay it still, but Whitey's on the moon. I can't argue with that. <laughs> Whitey, Whitey was 100% of the crew of New Shepard. That's right. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. All right. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where we all make recommendations for things that our listeners might enjoy. Stephen, you are our guest. You go first. What's your recommendation? Well, in keeping with the theme, I want to recommend a book. It's called Wally Funk's Race for Space. Nice. Written by uh, a BBC journalist named Sue Nelson. And she followed around Wally Funk for a few years. And you really get a sense of how... Being denied a place in the, as an astronaut in the early 1960s put a hole in this woman's life. And all her life, she wanted to get up there, which is why it was so great to see her finally breaking the Carmen line or whatever and, you know, being weightless. And, you know, you go up there and it's kind of like a bounce house. You know, they're all floating around and, you know, they threw Skittles at each other trying to catch it in their mouths. Um, and, you know, she her, her was complaining, I guess, a little that there wasn't enough room to, you know, do all the somersaults she wanted to do. And so she wants to go up again. And, uh, you know, but it was fantastic to see her finally accomplish her 
lifelong dream, and it's been a hell of a life for her. Awesome. That's awesome. Lauren, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is a show on HBO Max called Hacks. Um, that's not H-A-X, like HBO Max. That's H-A-C-K-S. Um, <laughs> it premiered in May, so all 10 episodes are already available. And yes, I binge watch it. It's about a legendary stand-up comedian named Deborah Vance. She has just learned that her long-standing Vegas show is being cut back and likely coming to an end. And then her manager ends up connecting her with a much younger sarcastic writer from L.A. who has had a hard time getting work because she's she made an offensive joke on Twitter and she's been canceled um, by her colleagues. And so she doesn't really want to work with Deborah Vance. She considers her kind of washed up. Deborah Vance doesn't want to work with her, but they end up insulting each other so much that they develop this like strange respect for each other. And so they decide to work together and um, hilarity ensues. And it's honestly, it's laugh out loud funny. Uh, I recommend you check it out. And if anyone needs my HBO login, let me know because HBO Max is expensive and I give it out. I give it out very freely to people. So, yes. Lauren, I want to second that recommendation. Uh, it's been a hell of a year for Jean Smart, who is the lead in Hacks. Uh, she also was in Mayor of Easttown, Delco, you know, at, uh, outside of Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, her performance is unbelievable. Yeah, she is chef's kiss. Very good. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, I'm going to recommend a gadget. And it's not a new gadget. It's kind of an old gadget. It's been around for, I guess, about four years. Uh, I'm holding it in my hand. It is called the Mighty Vibe. It's a it's a, an audio player. Uh, it's about the size of an iPod shuffle. It like looks the, like an iPod. Yeah, the square definitely. iPod shuffle. It's an iPod shuffle for Spotify, basically. Um, you pair it with an app on your phone. And you sync it to your Spotify account, and then you download your Spotify playlists onto this thing, and then you clip it to your shirt, and then you either use Bluetooth headphones or old school plug-in headphones, and you can listen to your music wherever you go. So, you know, it's like an iPod shuffle, but it basically syncs to Spotify. Um, it's something that I've wanted for a really long time, and it came out, and I never got one. There was one kicking around here at the office, and now that we're back in the office a couple of days a week, uh, I found it, and I was like, oh, I should try this out. Um, it's especially cool if you are like a runner or if you do a lot of hikes and stuff and you like to do that to get away from the internet and like go off grid because it's an offline device. Like it doesn't connect to Spotify unless you're in your home with your phone paired to the device and you're on Wi-Fi and then it syncs all the music and then you can take it offline. So when I go on runs, I clip this to my my running shorts <laughs> and then <laughs> I have music and I don't need to bring my phone with me when I go out. So um, it's $110, which is a lot. And also I should warn you that it is buggy. So it takes a little bit of time to get it to work properly. It may not connect to both of your headphones. You may have to try a couple of different pairs of headphones to get it to work. But once you get it working, it's just set it and forget it. And you can just clip it and press the button and go. Uh, so that's my recommendation, the Mighty Vibe. I'm looking at it right now. Can I see it? It's yeah. super cute. If you end your Spotify subscription, does it still work? I think it does. As long as you don't, like, I think if you just delete the app and then all of the music stays on the device and you never sync it again, it'll it'll just continue to play all the files. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you remember, that Pebble... I think just shortly before yeah. it was acquired, developed something called the core yeah. that I wrote yeah, about no, I wrote saw about their that. offices in New York City. 
And it was built for runners. It was a GPS accessory for runners. Yeah. And it was, it was, I think, a little bit larger maybe, but similar. Yeah. So, yeah, the iPod Shuffle still around, even though, uh, you know, they're just different now. <laughs> All right. That is our show for this week. Everybody should go read Stephen's dispatches from the Blue Origin launch in Van Horn, Texas. Uh, you can find those on Wired.com. Stephen, thank you for coming back on the show. Oh, I really loved it. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Goodbye. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the US dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.